Okay, I think we are live right now. Um, okay, great. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, yes, so welcome everyone who's watching on our Twitter, Facebook, and directly on the website. Um, actually, assistant, if you could pin it to the top of the website, that'd be really helpful. Thank you. Um, so we've got Sarah Jones. Um, these, well, I'm doing these in-conversation events to kind of find out what people are doing with their briefs. And now we're kind of going on to front benches as well as shadow cabinet members. And Sarah Jones is our first uh, front bencher. And we're going to talk to you about what you intend to do with your brief, basically, um, and issues around that. So you were shadow housing minister under Jeremy Corbyn, and now you're responsible for policing and fire services. How do you feel under the new leadership? Um, why did you back here? And also, I was wondering, are you secretly really annoyed because he has taken one of your key staff members and used him as a spokesperson? <laughs> um, well, thank, hello, thank you for having me on. It's, it's a real privilege um, to, to have this voice and this conversation. I'm slightly alarmed by the number of different platforms that we're live on at the moment, but um, uh, I, I'll try and answer all your questions as calmly as I can. Um, am I annoyed that Kia has uh, taken one of my staff members um he's absolutely brilliant and yes I am but it's good for, it's good for Tom he's he's fantastic and and uh, lucky here to have him um so I'm, I'm genuinely this is this is the most amazing brief for me because as you said under um Jeremy Corbyn I was shadow housing minister and um just uh, it was just a few days after I was elected in 2017 we had the Grenfell Tower fire and um a lot of my brief uh, my part of my my role as, as shadow housing minister was to look at what we were doing what the government was doing post grenfell and the shocking shocking way in which they have um pushed back and delayed and not lived up to their promises in terms of putting um fire safety right in this country um was something that i really wanted to work on and I, I did as, as the shadow housing minister now as as a uh, fire uh, shadow minister I, I I have the other side of that kind of conversation which is how do we make sure our fire services our firefighters have the tools that they need and how do we make sure we keep our buildings safe so I'm, I'm carrying on with what I loved doing and and in terms of the policing brief I spent um uh, the last three years setting up and chairing the all-party group on knife crime because it seemed to me from the 2017 election onwards that this government has utterly failed uh, to keep people safe. We have seen violent crime up 150%. I mean, extraordinary levels of um, crime in, in, in violent crime and in, in other crimes as well. And really no proper uh, strategy to tackle that from this government. So when Kia gave me this brief, it really was, uh, you know, brilliant. Um, you, you asked me why I backed him. I mean, it was it was a, 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 a you know it, it was quite an easy decision for me to make. I know here, and I have huge respect for him as I do for all the candidates who stood. Um, I think what I liked about him, particularly during the leadership campaign, that those people, those of us who supported him, he was really clear, and he said it time and time and time again that he wanted to bring the party together about unifying the party and if anybody said anything that was 
not um, uh, you know, not helpful on that front, then they really shouldn't be supporting him. And he really stuck to that. And I think it was a good natured um, leadership campaign. And I think, you know, you've got to you've got to preach the values, haven't you, that, that you have and actually live those values. And I think here does that um, as well as, you know, obviously his forensic brain and, and all the things that people talk about that are also true. I think he, he lives what he believes really deeply and, you know, and, and reflects that in his leadership. I wanted to ask you as well, because about the brief itself that you've got, it was previously Karen Lee on fire and Louise Haig on policing, wasn't it? So why has Labour chosen now to put together those two, fire and policing, in one role? Well, I'm shadowing Kit Malthouse, um, who who had um, the, the the two roles, and um, uh, I, I think it was just a natural kind of um, thing to do because we were reflecting government ministers' briefs. I know it was it was it's it's a controversial issue within the world of um, fire, but you know, particularly talk to the FBU about this, and I, I've worked with the FBU a lot. Um, on, on all the Grenfell um, work, you know, as, as Shadow Housing Minister as, as well as Shadow Fire Minister. And I think the worry, um, the worry was that by putting the two briefs together, you're diminishing, um, you're diminishing the fire brief because policing tends to get more kind of focused. Um, and, and I think that very much is not the case with me because I, you know, I've been doing this fire work for, for the last couple of years as Shadow Housing Minister. I'm, I know what I'm talking about. I, I want to do this stuff. I'm an expert in it. And and I think the view, you know, Nick um, Thomas Simmons, the Shadow Home Secretary, had the view that because I'd done that brief, it made sense as well for me to carry on doing it. So it's it's a it's a core part of what I do. I mean, we tried, I don't know if you saw in the, in the fire safety bill, Recently, when it was going through, we put down an amendment just to implement, you know, the first phase um, in recommendations from the Grenfell um, first phase inquiry. The really straightforward could have gone in that piece of legislation. The, the Tories absolutely refused to put it in, going back on on what you know they promised um, to, to implement it as soon as they as soon as they could. And and you know that's the kind of work that I'll just keep keep doing in Parliament. Yeah, that is one thing I was going to ask you about, because on Friday, it's the one year anniversary, isn't it, of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry's phase one report being published. And as you say, in September, Labour put down that amendment and the Tories voted it down to implement those recommendations, even though it's in their manifesto. It's been a long time now since they're recommended and obviously it's urgent because people are sleeping in their beds uh, and actually being scared. So we know that, you know, Grenfell style cladding is still it hasn't been removed from over 80 percent of private sector buildings nearly 50 percent of social sector buildings the one the one year anniversary is coming up this week so what are your plans to to pressure the government on that after that amendment fell yeah I mean it's a catastrophic mess across the board post Grenfell I mean first they they failed to look after the people who were the survivors and their families and and we we all remember the kind of dreadful lengths of time people are there are still people who haven't been permanently housed following the fire who, who weren't looked after properly then you know it transpired that there were lots of buildings covered in in ACM cladding and as you say they haven't they've, they've failed on their target you know they've set their own targets that they just keep failing in terms of removing the cladding from private and public um, sector blocks then they, they still haven't published the results of they've, they've done a, a load of um, work and, and testing to see um, how many other buildings are covered in 
flammable cladding that's not that exact same ACM cladding as it's called and Grenfell cladding, but other forms of flammable cladding. And they still haven't published that. And we still don't therefore know how many buildings are covered in flammable cladding. We know that it's, you know, this is, this is affecting a lot of people. The government's also looking at, you know, when the cladding has to be removed, how tall a building should be. And they're looking at reducing that from 18 metres down to 11 metres, which means a whole new raft of buildings will have to have their cladding removed. And they haven't sorted out at all who's going to pay for that. And we're having leaseholders, you know, who bought their flats, often first time buyers, um, having saved up, bought their flats. The flats are now worthless because they can't sell them. They can't get the pieces of paper that show that their flats are safe, even if they are safe, because there aren't enough people to do the testing. You know, and in the middle of all of that, you've got you've got a fire service who's being cut by, you know, um, uh, about 20 percent of, of, of the workforce in our in our um uh, our fire service has gone so you've got reduced capacity in in the fire service as well so in terms of what we're going to do <laughs> we're going to keep um investigating because the government bring out figures and they try and manipulate them to look good so we will keep getting the correct figures and highlighting those the next phase of the fire safety bill is it goes into the lords and that's coming up so we need to try and get the lords uh to get through um our amendment uh, and and working with them to make sure they're pushing for some of things that we wanted to see and that will come back and then there's the building safety bill it's another piece of legislation which is led by the housing team um but but there are kind of uh, elements within that that are about how do we how do we you know make our buildings safe how do we make sure they're paid for by the right people um not by the leaseholders who, who did nothing wrong and, and suddenly find themselves you know landed with all these bills um, and, and we need to fight to keep the, the fire service and, and to give it the strength that it that it needs um, in terms of, you know, people and in terms of paying conditions as well. Yeah, I mean, um, in these continued cuts to fire services, and I know that the, the FBU has highlighted that London faces over the next two years, 25 million uh, in cuts to the London Fire Brigade. I mean, is there more that Sadiq Khan in London and that Labour more broadly could be doing to prevent these cuts? What, what's our plan to, to campaign and resist that kind of, those kind of measures when it's still so fresh in people's minds, the Grenfell Tower fire? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the horrific cuts that we saw when Boris Johnson was mayor to the fire service, um, uh, was, you know, £100 million taken out of the system and, and the cuts that, that went from there. There's, there's, you know, there's limited... Um, things you can do in terms of reducing um, capacity even more. There are fewer fires now, but of course, when a fire happens, you still need that capacity. You still need that huge capacity, um, as we saw with Grenfell, um, of the quantity of trained people to go in and, and fight that fire. And we see, um, you know, we, we are seeing um, uh, you know plenty of other fires still um and we saw during covid the way that the fire service stepped up and and stepped in and you know were were you know delivering food were delivering babies in some cases were were, were doing um all sorts so i think what we're um going to be looking at as a as a party and this is for Annalise Dodds and, and Kia to kind of lead on is what is our policy on on public sector workers full stop and I know we've said it a million times since COVID but it's, it's still true you know there we were clapping every week um, but actually what does that mean in terms of how we value you know people who work in our public services and how do we protect those jobs and how do we make sure they're paid properly and that and that's a that's a whole conversation about the public sector 
in general, um, of which our fire services are absolutely at the, at the core. And I, you know, I talked to um, the London Fire Service and um, uh, Fiona Twycross, who's the deputy mayor in London, um, with responsibility for for the fire service. Um, you know, a lot, um, and I've seen their response to fires that have happened in my constituency and I've seen what they do and how valuable they are and I'm, I'm not going to you know I, I'm, I'm going to be fighting of course for, for, for the service to, to be able to do what it needs to do. You know that Unison has its, its campaign you know, going back to normal which is definitely some of the, the messages that Keir has been sending as well around the pandemic and it seems like it is, it is um, a moment that obviously Labour's message on public sector workers being uh, valued um, is going to be a really important one. And it yeah. seemed like, I mean, at the last election, Labour did actually have a really strong offer for public sector workers in terms of boosting pay, but it just didn't seem as if the Labour Party was really talking about it that much. What, at the moment, you mean? No, at, at the last election. During the election. Campaign, it was in the manifesto. We yeah. can massively boost public sector pay, and yet it was wasn't really talked about. Yeah, well, I mean that was one of the uh, criticisms of um, you know that many people, you know, yourself and, and, and the role that you played in looking at uh, you know what went wrong. That there were so many things in our manifesto that yeah. um, we tried to do, and that is that is a that is such a labour thing to do, and and I've always done it. And I, you know, when I worked for I was a civil servant, worked for Tessa Jowell on the Olympics she wanted to fix every single problem in society through the Olympics. You know, she was going to use the power of Olympics to tackle knife crime. She was going to tackle obesity. She was going to tackle everything in between. And then there was a change of government and um, the Tories came in and they were like, forget all of that. We just want to make sure we deliver the games. That's all we care about. Forget everything else. And it's, and it's, it's because we come from a place of, of seeing and feeling the problems in society and wanting to fix them all. We have, we want to have a solution for everything. And that's where the Tories always, you know, um, get a march on us in terms of their um, communications because they'll have you know one two things that they say and we'll want to talk about everything but of, of course I think now the public are in a place where they have seen the value of our key workers and our public services and in a very vulnerable um, economic climate with Covid you know we saw the Resolution Foundation report today in terms of the job losses um, that that we've seen and that we're, we're, we're potentially going to see you know, jobs in, in our public services, you know, are, are potentially a very um, uh, attractive place to be in terms of the security that you can get from that job and, and um, the skills and the, the training that you can get within, within those roles. So I hope through, through COVID we've, we've amplified the kind of need to protect those services and make sure people are paid properly. Yeah, that Resolution Foundation report is a really interesting one. I really recommend everyone goes and reads it, actually. And I'll write up, obviously, of it. It's, it's like it, it really shows that it's BAME and youth unemployment that are the real dangers uh, right now and is going to get worse in the coming months. Um, but, yeah, back to fire. So I know that something else that the FBU has raised concerns about is they've been really opposed to police and crime commissioners, PCCs, taking over fire, fire and rescue services. They say that these these people probably have no experience of doing that and that firefighters are not agents of the state, they're not law enforcers. What do you think of that issue? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I was talking to police and crime commissioners, Labour police and crime commissioners about this just recently because I'm 
kind of get into the um, uh, delve into the kind of um, roles of police and crime commissioners, not least because we've got the elections coming up that should have been this year that are now going to be next year um, and are really important. I mean, those elections generally, we now have so many elections next May um, that we're going to be you know, campaigning on all fronts. And I was talking to them and obviously there is the power now for police and, and uh, crime commissioners to, to weave um, fire into their brief, but, but very few people have wanted to do that. And there doesn't seem to be much appetite for it um, in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, 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 certainly the Labour police and crime commissioners not, not you know, wanting to see that as, as something that they, do. Uh, it speaks to the worries that I talked about before in terms of the fire service, you know, feeling like you try and merge the two together and you're kind of undermining the role of one. And I know there are um, views in terms of um, the, the trust that people have in, in um, our firefighters, the need for them to be able to, you know, go into people's um, homes and do what they need to do and, and not wanting to lose that. And I think that's, um, that's, you know, really important. Um, so I, I don't get the sense that there's a big push from anywhere to make that something um, that happens everywhere. Um, and, and I don't get a, a sense that that's what that's what people are, are calling for. In terms of um, PCCs generally, I mean, what what have you been talking about? And we're interested to know in your kind of conversations with them recently. And are you worried gen generally about the potential politicisation of that area of public services. So what have I been talking to PCCs about? Well, we've been talking about the, the elections and what support they need from us and how we're going to do a proper campaign, um, how that's going to work in terms of COVID. I did my first virtual visit up to Cleveland last week. I was supposed to be going to see Paul Williams, uh, who's, you know, was my colleague um, as Labour MP, um, came in in 2017. Which me is now the police and crime commissioner um, uh, um, candidate in Cleveland. Been talking about the, the the resources that they need for the existing PCCs. Um, there are lots of worries about police funding, as I'm sure you can imagine. So, is the money going to be there for the recruitment of the extra officers? Um, what does it mean now? There's going to be um, a comprehensive spending review just for a year. Uh, there won't be certainty. The areas that have been um, given a bit of money to tackle serious violence, and they've got these um, violence reduction units and, and funding for that. That funding is only for a year at a time, which makes it impossible to do the things you want to do in the long term um, tackling of violence. And it's its causes and its its root causes. Um, I, you know, people are worried about the costs that they 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 uh, the start of COVID. You know, spent more um, funds. There's confusion still about whether those funds are going to come back to them or whether they're going to be taken out of the recruitment budget. Um, there's also issues around. Um, around the 20,000 uplift of police officers, what then happens to police staff? So PCSOs, you know, the forensics going into your house when your house has been burgled, um, police, you know, people answering the 999 calls, all of those staff, are they gonna be affected? But overlying all of that is from Labour PCCs is this desire to get out the message <laughs> that crime under the Conservatives, violent crime up 150%. Um, uh, you know, only one in 14 people, I find this figure unbelievable, only one in 14 crimes 
lead to a conviction. So the vast majority of victims of crime in this country get no justice whatsoever. And if you look at the levels of knife crime that have gone up and you look at the absolute decimation of neighbourhood policing, our PCSOs, as well as police officers, you know, the, 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 the Tory record is woeful. And a lot of the problems that we're seeing um, in, terms of, in terms of crime just lead straight back to the decisions that were made about funding and resources. And, and we need to, as a Labour Party, we need to get those messages out in the PCC elections so that actually in Labour areas, we are making a difference. We're prioritising the right things, but it's the government that needs to, you know, put its house in order when it comes to crime. I mean, it's one of those things that um, Labour always seems to have a bit of a challenge on its hands because the Tories just have this reputation of being trusted on, on crime and the police and all those services when actually they're the ones most enthusiastically cutting them. Um, but Absolutely. I... <laughs> Absolutely. It's so frustrating because they really are not keeping people safe and people feel... Uh, you know, they can't walk through the streets, they don't feel safe because violent crime has increased so much. And we've seen, you know, obviously during COVID, um, we saw a reduction in, in violent crime, we saw a reduction in burglaries and, and robberies and all of those things because people were indoors, no one was going out. But those those crimes have gone right back up again. Um, and obviously we had that, um, you know, the horrific increase. We've seen the figures today, a 9% increase in domestic violence over the year, which is a bigger increase over the, over the last few months. Uh, and the impact of people being in, uh, increase in antisocial behaviour, increase in hate crimes, also increase in abuse against the police um, over the last few months as well. And I think, you know, the police really struggle with having to deal with um, the impact of the cuts on mental health, um, on youth services, all of the support services that were there. When you go out with, you know, police officers, when you when you ride out with them and they are dealing with really significant mental health incidents with people who should be getting treatment and they're not. Um, it's just heartbreaking because they're spending all their time. They're not trained. They don't want to be doing this. They have to do it because, you know, people who are, you know, saying they're going to commit suicide or they're being violent because they haven't had the treatment and the police are the ones picking up the pieces, which means they can't be solving the crimes that we need them to solve and the changing nature of crime where a lot, you know, the huge amount of fraud that we're now seeing online fraud, you know, the, 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 the changing patterns of crime that make it harder still for the police to do what they need to do mean that they just don't have the resources. And, um, and they end up, uh, you know, not being able to tackle the crimes, not being able to be as intelligence led in, in terms of their work as they should be. They just don't have the resources. So as you were talking about before, you have really focused on knife crime and you, you represent Croydon and you set up the APPG on it. What have you learned about knife crime from the experiences of your constituents, from interacting with them, your casework and from your work in Parliament and is there anything in particular that has actually surprised you in doing that kind of research? Um, yeah so it, it came up a lot in 2017 I, I stood in 2015 and, and lost by 165 votes to Gavin Barwell who then wrote the book How to Win a Margin of Victory and then I beat him in 2017. Pleasurable um, but he, in, in 2017 more than 2015 crime is coming up on the doorstep all the time and, and it's because knife crime had started going up from about 2014 and I think that was the time when the cuts really started to the impact of the cuts started to, to, to impact on people's you know 
life choices and outcomes. And we saw knife crime rocket. And, and during that 2017 election, I canvassed a lot of people who talked about it, including a young lad called Kelvin Smith, who talked to me about the lack of youth services, talked to me about... Um, uh, you know what he thought needed to be done in in Croydon, and then a few months later, he he was dead. He'd been murdered, stabbed, and, and bled out to death on the street. And and you know this is this is kind of real, real heartbreaking um, stuff. And so I set up the all party group, and there's loads of things that are surprising. The first meeting that we had, we had with young people from across the country, you know, this, and this is not a London problem. This is a problem across the country. There's just more people in London, so the numbers are higher, but, but you know, knife crime has, has risen faster in other cities than, than London. Um, but we talked to these young people who'd been in prison or who, who'd been convicted of knife crime offences. And we talked to them about prison. And, you know, it's always so important to speak to young people and hear, they have to say we talked to them about what prison was like and I you know we heard all these stories of people saying well sometimes it's a bit of a break to go to prison because I don't have to be on the streets I don't have to be doing these things I'm not in a dangerous situation I'm getting food um you know yes I miss you know my mum on my birthday but apart from that it's a, you know and, and those kind of insights are surprising and help you think about you know the assumptions you make about about policy interventions I think some of the connections to knife crime I was shocked by. So one big report we did was on school exclusions, which have gone up over 50% in the last few years under the Tories. And, and half of all the kids who are excluded have, have special educational needs that have clearly not been um, addressed in, in, in enough. And it's because of all the cuts. You know, a teacher's got 32 kids in the class, loads of kids with special um, needs, no, no TAs in the classroom anymore. Uh, and you know you end up having to exclude people because of their behaviour when actually they need support. But the the impact that that exclusion has on kids and their life chances, um, and the mess that the system is in. So in a third, we did a big piece of research. In a third of local authorities, they don't have any places left in their pupil referral units. So you've got kids with problems that are unresolved being excluded. Then with nowhere to go and they become so vulnerable and the stories that I heard you know about people waiting outside pupil referral units and going you know and grooming people just from from the school gates uh, to, to get involved in county lines drug carrying you know on the basis of you know do, do you want some chicken let's go and let's go and eat something I'll give you this and then you know you build up a relationship and then it's like oh you, you owe me for for these things so can you just do this for me and all, before you know it you're wrapped up into into really serious violence so you know there's there's loads of shocking things about the way our society now is underfunded and, and young people are under um under supported I mean youth work you know 40 percent cuts to our youth services and again, we did another piece of work that directly, there is a direct link between um, youth services and um, knife crime. And if you, if you map the whole country in the areas where you have the largest cuts to youth services, you had the fastest rise in knife crime. And you can't say you've cut that youth center, therefore, you know, this person stabbed someone, it doesn't work like that. But you look at the trend and where you where you rip away support for young people, you know, they make they make choices that, that they might not make if, if an adult was there helping them. Uh, I know that Kat's been pushing the government for a long time on making it compulsory to 
you know, provide some kind of use service. They're obviously not budging on that. It's not priority for them. But I mean, what you were saying about education as well and, and school exclusions kind of reminds me of, well, obviously the fact that that particularly affects black boys, doesn't it? And again, that feeds into knife crime as well. Yeah. So there's such a strong link there. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, again, if, if, if COVID has, has helped with anything, it's, it's uncovering that systemic disproportionality across all parts of society. So you've, you've got the, the Doreen Lawrence um, report yesterday who, who, you know, bless her, came to my all party group meetings, which was, you know, as a new MP, when you set up a, a meeting and Doreen Lawrence walks in, you're like, oh, my gosh, um, this is serious business. Um, but she, she's just done the report um, on, on looking at, at COVID and, and disproportionality and has got a whole raft of, of recommendations, but it's kind of clear. You've got the Resolution Foundation report looking at um, employment and, and the links there. We know just on a basic level that if you're black or, or from minority ethnic background, you're more likely to get COVID, more likely to die from COVID. And then you've got, you know, all of the um, systemic, you know, issues around school exclusion, around stop and search, around um, prison uh, places. I mean, I, I had, um, I was talking to the um, local uh, probation um, services in Croydon and they had, there's not many children in custody anymore. You know, the numbers have gone down. That is a good thing. But in Croydon at this one point about two months ago, there were 10 children in custody. Nine of them were black boys. Now, this, this speaks to poverty, it speaks to housing, it speaks to, um, you know, uh, just racism and the impact of discrimination. It's, it, all of these things. And I think COVID has really flushed out some of this um, in, into the public arena and, and, and helped us to understand what some of these issues are. But yeah, if you're, if you're a young black boy, you're more likely to be excluded um, from school. And that's that's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, you've talked about Obama's aim to make Labour the kind of the party of security. And he talked about that in his um, sort of conference speech and to make sure that Labour is kind of trusted to keep people safe. So obviously your brief's going to be a really important one on that basis. But I was thinking that, I mean, under Jeremy Corbyn, Sometimes people don't quite realise this, but Labour did put out all these PPBs about making communities safer. It did talk an awful lot about austerity in terms of policing, the cuts there, putting bobbies on the beat, cuts to police numbers. And, and it actually seemed to be quite successful in terms of the 2017 general election campaign. That It seemed like there was a real moment where that messaging was cutting through. I found from the doorstep, as well as I think people were saying this in their report mm. on the election. In what way do you think the new leadership is going to kind of take a different approach to how Labour did that under Corbyn? And how do you think it's going to be more successful in getting across that message? That's a really good question. And that's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I mean, in, in that speech, uh, Keir said, you know, what we put forward in the next election, you know, we, we, we don't know what that is yet, but it will it will, you know, draw on our values, but it will it will look like the future. And that's quite, quite a scary challenge to the front bench of, you know, okay, what does what does that future look like? And um, I think on keeping people safe, it's, that goes beyond that that message, that feeling goes beyond just the policing brief. It it, it covers the whole kind of um, home affairs defence um, brief um, and as a as a piece. And and you're right, we had some really good policies and we got some cut through. But, but, 
maybe we 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 need to work harder on what's the story of of how we're going to keep people safe i think we talk about the cuts maybe we didn't talk enough about the consequences and the victims and the impacts um so if you are you know uh, a, a, a person now who's the victim of um say really horrific antisocial behavior or or a burglary or someone steals your car you know do you believe that under a Labour government, you know, you're more likely to get justice, you're more likely to get um, to, 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 to see that crime either not happen in the first place or, or go or, or be punished? And I think we didn't win that argument. And I think part of it is is about listening to the police, of course, and listening to what their issues are and what their challenges are and what they need in terms of um, in terms of resources. Part of it is is telling the story of the victims and you know, what we can actually do to, to make sure you, you can. And that's where the fire and the police um, brief, you know, sit well to, you know, you need, we need to persuade people that they'll be safe in their homes and that they'll be safe on our streets mm-hmm. and that Labour can, can deliver that. And I think we can, absolutely, I think we can. Um, but we need to be able to tell that story and, and reflect policing in the future. So, you know, there are huge challenges, as I say, with online crime, which which goes virtually you know you know a lot of a lot of crime there is is not even tackled and we need to look at that and go well actually in the future what can we do and what is the future of neighborhood policing and what is the future of um of how we tackle these really difficult crimes the kind of you know terrorism or the the long-standing child abuse cases all of those things need to come together um and that's what we're beginning to look at as a as a new team under under Nick Thomas Simmons and, and, and try and work out what those answers are. I think there's it's partly there's a bit of a tension because lots of Labour activists are very cl- critical of the police and we've seen this particularly because of Black Lives Matter recently and I mean for instance the EHRC investigated the Met Police and Obviously, the, the, the Labour EHRC report is coming out tomorrow, but it did a very similar a statutory investigation into whether unlawful acts were committed when they were dealing with complaints of discrimination. And I don't think they found that in that case, but they did find that there were weaknesses in terms of how it, it dealt with those complaints. And then we saw today as well, there was the Independent Office for um, Police Conduct reviewed the Met's use of stop and search powers. And it found that the powers for instance, were exercised after two black men fist bumped. Uh, so that, um, and then during the pandemic, we saw videos um, during Black Lives Matter. We saw videos a few months ago where I remember one was this guy had just come back from doing an interview actually about uh, structural racism and the police. And he was in his car and he had yeah. his windows smashed by the police and they found no drugs on him afterwards at all. And he said, he'd never in his life ever handled or taken any drug and I just can't imagine that kind of treatment I can't imagine being in my car and being suspected of having drugs on me on seemingly no basis whatsoever and having my windows smashed and I mean I certainly can't say that I've never handled or taken any drug in my life so I mean how are you planning to kind of approach these sorts of tensions within the Labour Party and these kind of issues do you understand why some labor activists are are drawn to slogans like defund the police even though maybe that doesn't apply in the uk in the same way that it does in the us but a lot of those kind of things that came up during black lives matter actually really important to labor activists what's the plan to kind of address those concerns yeah yeah Yeah. 
No, well, they're very real concerns and they need to be addressed. And um, I, I mean, the IOPC report that you talk about that came out today, looking at the Met Police, um, that the um, uh, Michael Lockwood, who's the Director General of the IOPC, I've, I've had several conversations with him about these issues. They're looking, you know, they look at individual cases and they are looking at, at some like the use of, there was a, um, a use of taser in, in Greater Manchester, um, kind of early time during lockdown that they're investigating. They also look at the kind of themes and they're looking at the use of taser. So there's disproportionality there, you know, and, and, and it is something that they worry about. I've talked to the College of Policing about this, but how do we train in, you know, uh, enough um, uh, within the, the kind of training system about how you do stop and search, about how you uh, tackle unconscious bias, all of those things. Talk to Martin Hewitt, who um, heads up the um, National Police Chiefs Council. They're doing a big piece of work, which which we're feeding into on how does the police respond to Black Lives Matter in a way that is meaningful. Um, and you know, obviously, talking to um, Sophie Linden and, and the Mayor of London uh, about about the, the kind of Met in particular. So what um, what the the, the, the um, IOPC report said was you know there's some recommendations and all of these things have to happen one is about how we record things and this is a huge issue recording of data so that we know what that disproportionality is we, we know in terms of stop and search basic um basic facts but we don't for example record if someone is stopped in a car as you as you the example you talked about that's not record your ethnicity is not recorded in that in that incident so yeah, it needs yeah. to be because you can't you can't understand the problem until you flush out the issues. Then in, in um, the IOPC report, they talked about, and a lot of Labour MPs in London have been talking about this for several months because it's been something that's been coming up on the doorstep, talking to people, is the, is the use of, of a handcuff automatically when you stop someone. You're not supposed to handcuff someone unless there is a real risk to, you, you, you perceive there's a real risk um, to, to, to their safety or your safety. But there seems to have been a shift where people are um, uh, are using handcuffs um, too much. The IOPC have said we need to look at um, systems so that someone is making sure that when stop and search happens, that there aren't people getting into behaviours that, that shouldn't be there. And I'll give you an example in Croydon. In my patch, we've done absolutely tons of work on this, absolutely loads, and it's and it's so important. Um, but the the, the um, violence suppression unit, which is which is the the unit of people, it's about eighty people in Croydon, uh, who do the stop and search. They're the, the kind of frontline stop and search um, team. In Croydon, there's about eighty of them. Not a single one of them is black. Not a single one. Um, and two thirds of them are brand new. So you've got a few things all happening together and they all need to be tackled. And I'm sorry, I'll, I'll talk about this forever because there's so many different elements. To this. But, but the, um, the fact that not a single one of those officers is, is black, just, just before you even start, you're at a disadvantage because you don't have anyone with a lived experience of knowing what it's like um, to be, to be um, discriminated against just because of what you look like. And, and one of the things that the IOPC said in their report about the Met today is that people didn't understand the impact of that stop and search would have on those individuals or those communities. And that's mm -hmm. so important. And you need, you know, of course, you need to be recruiting more black in particular, but also other ethnic minorities into, into the Met Police and into the police across the board. And there are conversations there about should it be through targets? Should it be through ambitions? Should, should we put numbers 
on on this because some forces do in the West Midlands. Um, they've got 3,000 new police officers under the uplift. They'll, they will be recruiting. A thousand of them, they've said, have to be black or, or from minority ethnic background. So that, that puts a number on it, and, and that's helpful. But, that you know, there's some resistance to that because sometimes it has unintended consequences in other ways, but that, that's a conversation. Um, you've got to be having relationships with the local community. So, again, in Croydon, <laughs> since Black Lives Matter... Um, every Friday, the local police and local organisations come together and talk about fixing problems and talk about each other's issues and talk about how we can understand each other better. And there's, there's been a whole raft of work that's happened since then. Every new recruit gets community training on what the different communities are in Croydon, how they all behave. I mean, one of the stories in the IOPC report, as you say, was, was that people were fist bumping and, and, and people thought that was, you know, some kind of drug trade or something and, and and just teaching these things so people understand different communities and then there is unconscious bias training already uh, in the met police and, and and in um for new recruits for the police but i think we need to look at you know does that do what we need it to do is it enough do we need to do more um but i think uh, you know is there racism there in in the police yes is the systemic racism like feeding all of these things across society absolutely so for the police in terms of stop and search what they used to have was a whole raft of neighborhood police officers who would get the intelligence about their local community and build up relationships in their local community so it does two things builds relationships with local people so they know and trust the police also enables the police to understand where some of the crime spots are, who the, who the people are that are getting involved. And they therefore, it's intelligence led. When you do stop and search, you're stopping people who you know, <laughs> because of your policing work, are more likely to be involved in crime. So your, your stop and searches are more effective. At the moment, all of that's been ripped out. So police officers don't have that relationship with the community. They don't have the neighborhood police because they've all been taken away. So when they stop and search, you know, they don't have the intelligence to go to go along with that in terms of who people are. So you end up being more likely to be stopping people on, you know, more spurious reasons than, than not. So there's a whole world of work to be done here. And, you know, all of the different police organisations that I'm talking to are all working on this. Um, and, and we need to we need to get this right. And it, it's the one thing Theresa May did that was good. <laughs> um, you know, when she was Home Secretary, she said stop and search is not about the numbers, it's about the quality. And the disproportionality went down on her watch and then started to go up again from about 2014-15. And it's gone up um, um, since because, you know, Boris Johnson has, has said, you know, we want more stop and search, even though he brought it down. When he was mayor of London, Boris Johnson, stop and search went down every year when he was mayor of London. Um, but he's, he forgets that now because uh, he likes to look tough. So he said, let's do more stop and search. And, and the more that you do and the less intelligence led policing you've got, obviously, you know, this, this is the consequence. Um, people, people are making, uh, are more likely to make bad choices. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of work to be done, and and, and to be fair to, to the police organisations that I'm working with, they're all working on this. And but you know, we need to see a year down the line an improvement. Uh, just kind of related to these sorts of issues is that I mean, Labour has praised the kind of light touch approach of police to enforcement of COVID rules during the pandemic. But I 
to be honest, I slightly cringe whenever Labour people say something like that, because we know, and I think this was mentioned in the Lawrence review, that BAME people are up to seven times more likely to be fined than white people during this pandemic. I think when we go out on the streets and we're just a bit more comfortable that we're not gonna be stopped and scrutinized in the same way. And obviously our experiences are, are never the same. What do you think about that, that kind of COVID enforcement? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think generally in terms of COVID, it's been really difficult for the police and generally um, the kind of levels, and I don't want to make you cringe, but I, I think the levels of, you know, the, the response that they've, that they've made have been, have been um, about right and it's been really difficult and they have struggled. So when things like um, Dominic Cummings, uh, you know, going up to Barnard Castle, when that happened, that was a very difficult moment for the police because people were genuinely, absolutely livid and um, we're saying, well, why do we have to abide by the rules when when Dominic Cummings isn't? And um, ever since then, and as we've got more sort of different layers, all the different tiers, you know, different systems in place, it is, it is hard for the police. And we did see, you know, a few times where things w went wrong in terms of um, uh, enforcement, but they were kind of put right. But, but you're right, there's still a disproportionality there. And... Um, Yvette Cooper chairing the Home Affairs Select Committee is doing a big um, report into this and has taken evidence. And again, one of the things that we need to, to fix is the lack of proper data on, on all of these things and making sure we're recording the right things in the right places. Um, but yeah, I think it, 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 it all speaks to this systemic problem where you, you know there is disproportionality running through the entire um the entire system of, of society from housing to poverty to policing and we need to you know we need to respond appropriately and this government isn't and hasn't and you know just wants to have a cultural war about something but doesn't actually want to tackle a problem um, and you know we need to keep highlighting that I think. It's confusing isn't it when we think like tier one plus now <laughs> to know what your rules are. Um, but yeah, another, just one last thing from me before I just put you a few uh, questions that have actually been submitted by readers. There's something comparable when it comes to misogyny, I think. I mean, Cresta Dick, for instance, has said that she's against misogyny becoming a hate crime because basically it would be too much work. There's so much misogyny about, uh, it would be too difficult. And I, I think some of that fails to see violence against women as, you know, being on a spectrum. Street harassment is not separate from domestic abuse. Those are the kind of things that we need to be talking about. These things are rooted in the same problem, the same original cause, which is misogyny. Um, and people don't talk about that enough. And also, I mean, police officers are less likely to be convicted, especially when we're talking about violence against women. We saw this week, I don't know if you saw this case, but of a police officer who, strangled his lover to death um, and was only convicted of manslaughter, not murder. Yeah. He literally yeah. stood up <laughs> his defense in court was that literally that his hands slipped. I mean, it's so it's so disgusting that it's, it's actually difficult to talk about. What's your view of misogyny in the police office, in the police forces and what, what kind of thing? I mean, it's a sort of a similar issue in that some people, you know, they don't see the police forces as something that represents safety to them because there are these structural problems of misogyny and racism. So it's not the kind of the, the safe place that you would think they are, that they represent to all people. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so Nick's asked me to to do some work on this, and I'm just um, starting that work now. There are there are better women than me who've been doing loads of work on this in, in Parliament. Um, you know, Melanie On did loads before she lost her seat, sadly, and and Stella's been um, doing loads of work around the domestic violence bill, and 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 Jess Phillips. Um, I think it, misogyny is it's about coming back to the kind of basics. What are we trying to achieve and if you look at the things like um the report that plan international did i mean they've done loads of good stuff in this in this space but looking at how women actively change where they go and what they do because they're scared of the abuse and the attacks that they might get so whether it's holding your keys in your fingers as you walk along whether it's getting out of a train and, and changing carriage because you're you're scared whether it's where you go and, and who you see you know that people need women need to be able to go about their business without living in fear so how do we tackle that and looking at, at misogyny um the law commission has done some work here and said you know it could be part of um the kind of protected characteristics group so that if you're convicted of, of, of a crime and it's one of those hate crimes and misogyny is, is part of that then your 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 um sentence will be greater um they are consulting on this and I think um, there's kind of there's two bits of it what one is to start by hearing the voices of women in this and and victims and you know I would encourage anybody as Stella has been to 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 really you know get in touch with the law commission and, and give your views because it's important that those voices are heard so we need to we need to hear from women um and then the, the second bit is again this kind of data and the data gathering that's what stella was calling for in, in domestic violence bill amendment that she did um there is that there are several police forces that are now recording misogyny um and nottinghamshire with paddy tipping as the police and crime commissioner is the kind of is the one that people cite has been going the longest since since 2014 there was a big piece of work done um before that point by by the local um citizens uk and 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 what they found is that this is this is a good thing to record misogyny is a good thing to, to make people see the connections between um uh violence and sexual abuse and misogyny and to feel like they're being listened to by the police that the police understand these issues and, you know, I think we all as as women will all have had an experience where horrible things have been done to us and we haven't gone to the police because we kind of think probably not that big a thing. Certainly it's happened to me in my youth several times where I should have gone to the police and I didn't. Um, and, um, you know, how do, how do we fix that? And one of the ways of fixing that is, is for police forces to be asking those questions, recording that information and then responding and seeing the connections between the kind of violent crime and the sexual abuse and, and you know the, the under-reporting of all these things is really at the heart of a lot of this and I think you know talking about misogyny whether it's whether it's the recording of data or whether it's it's through law changes means that hopefully women feel safer and able to come forward and not on their own <laughs> um, in, in the things that, that happen to them. Yeah, absolutely. We've all got those experiences and things where we look back and should have gone to the police uh, and obviously didn't because it's a very scary prospect um, and everything that goes with that. Um, okay, so questions from readers. So I've got um, Adam Peggs asked, uh, all forms of stop and search disproportionately harm black and Asian people. Would you support calls to scrap stop and search altogether? 
Um, no, Storm Search is, is a useful tool, and the, you know the work I've done uh, certainly in Croydon with the local um, black community in Croydon. You know there there are no calls to to, to end it. People think it's. Um, I mean, you know, people want to be safe, and this is that this is a tool that the police have, but the police have to do it properly and proportionately and there are ways and you know and ways and means and we have to keep that in mind um i think the sec use of section 60 as it's known which is um where um the police are given slightly wider um remit in terms of stopping people they don't have to have the direct um belief that they are you know uh, doing something criminal at that point or, or holding something um illegal that is is more worrying the use of, of section 60 it, it's it's mainly been used in the past in in london the vast majority of the section 60s historically had been during the notting hill carnival where, where there's a kind of whole area that that's um police are allowed to stop and, and i think that's where we really need to ask some questions about the effectiveness of that and whether it's needed and again there's been a message from the prime minister you know we want more section 60 actually the evidence is not really there <laughs> that it helps tackle crime and and this all comes back to you know what is actually going to tackle crime um and you know if it's not then uh, you know we need to be we need to be questioning its validity even despite the disproportionality that, that is there that we know is there okay um next question uh, adam had two questions the government is rolling out new tasers which they say will be more dangerous does labor oppose that policy decision so uh, tasers, I, I, I think I'm um, right in, in saying we're brought in under Jackie Smith um, when she was Home Secretary as a, as a move, and people will correct me if I'm wrong here, but as a, as a move against the kind of push for police to be armed. We, we don't want to be moving to a, a, an American style system where more and more police are armed. And, and I think taser was seen as a, a response to those calls um the iopc are looking at the disproportionate use of tasers and it's true the government have said they've given a number you know we want uh, i think you know several thousand more tasers to be used the interesting thing is that the police don't necessarily want those powers they don't necessarily you know when you talk to senior police officers they don't necessarily want their officers just willy-nilly to be carrying tasers it's 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 again it's a kind of government policy that's sort of rammed in in order to it's like we want ten thousand more prison places you know it, it's it's one of those we're tough messages from the government that aren't necessarily going to do anything to actually tackle crime so i you know i'm working with the iopc looking at you know what is this disproportionality why is that happening and, and do we really need this number? And, and I don't think you really need a, a kind of figure where we need 10,000 tasers or, you know, that, that doesn't really help anyone. You need to get back to, to basics. And, you know, I've done some work with the College of Policing as well about, you know, if you look at when you're supposed to use tasers, you are going to carry them. You're supposed to, you know, there's a whole system that you go through before you would use the taser, giving people fair warning of what you're going to do. Um, and, and, and we need to make sure that is in place um, because this is serious stuff um, uh, and, you know, we need to be getting it right. Okay, I've got a few more for you that we'll try and get through in four minutes. Um, <laughs> Trisha says, you've rightly prioritised recruitment into the police from BAME communities, but figures on this show that even where initial recruitment figures increase, retention rates are really poor. And after three years, many BAME recruits leave. 
how can this fundamental issue of making the police a welcoming profession for BAME young people be tackled from a government perspective? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. It's not just that the numbers are, are low. People don't stay in the police. They're not promoted as much. And there's more um, cases um, uh, against them when, in terms of employment as well. So all of those things need to be tackled. So Martin Hewitt, who, who is head of the Police Chiefs Council, is, is doing this big piece of work that's going to come out in the autumn about this. And the mayor's office in London are doing a, a piece of work that they're going to put out about this as well. And it's it's about being really transparent about, you know, making sure um, uh, not just that we get more black um, and minority ethnic people into the police force, but that they're treated in the same way as everybody else once they're there. And and um, there are good and bad areas, which is interesting. And there's like, there's always a debate in policing about the, all the 43 police forces, you know, should we do things more in a, in a joined up way and have one system that everyone deals with or should we keep them separately? But there, there are there are some areas that are better than others. So I think this is about training. It's about, um, you know, putting in place those systems where discrimination can't happen within the workplace, just as you wouldn't want it within in any workplace. Um, and um you know the unconscious I mean, most big corporations now have unconscious bias training in hr it's a very basic you know some of the organizations i've worked in in the past it's a very basic thing that you do because you do have a perceived um view of the world and you need to just be aware of that when you're recruiting when you're managing staff and you know that that's part of the solution as well just be aware of the, the views that you might have and the, the views of the world that you might hold and how that impacts on the way you treat people um, is a kind of a, a basic um, thing that a lot of organisations do now um, throughout, um, you know, as, as managers of, of people in an organisation. So I think there's there's a lot of work going on on this, but it's a really good point and it's, it's something that needs to be measured and watched. Um, Kathy says uh, that her late uncle was a station officer at one time the youngest in England and her father also a firefighter. My uncle, she says, was at one time a chief fire officer and used to inspect business premises annually and issue or withhold fire safety certificates. I understand this was replaced with cheaper and inadequate self-certification. Um, please can Labour have a policy to restore the system of inspections annually by fire officers from the fire services uh, with the same powers they used to have in the days when they were feared, including to close premises that have failed to fulfil their recommendations? Yeah, I mean, this is this is gets to the heart of the, the problem and the, and the issues that we're trying to tackle. Um, you know, anybody can set themselves up as a fire and, you know, a, a, a fire expert and be paid to go in and see if your building is safe. And the fire safety bill that's going through Parliament now says that the freeholder, you know, needs to also be responsible for the materials on the on the wall of their building, as well as the fire doors and, and all of that. And, and you need experts to understand that you absolutely do. And we've lost um, a load of them from the fire service, you know, and there aren't that many fire engineers in the country anyway. And that's the problem we're seeing now with all these buildings suddenly needing to be checked. And there's only, you know, there's like 300 people that can do it. And we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of buildings. So yeah, absolutely. And, and those are, you know, those are the first things to go in terms of the cuts, you, you need your frontline firefighters so it's in that kind of inspection world that, that you know, we, we saw some of the, the greatest cuts as well. So that all needs resolving. Government needs a plan. They don't have any plan for that at the moment. 
just got two more. Um, Terry says, Labour's plan for community police. Should new recruits, do you think, be directly picked from local communities and receive additional uh, support and training and local interaction with adequate funding? Yeah, it was an interesting question. They, they used to be able to have to in the Met and, and now they don't. And, and I think Cresta is looking at bringing that back, um, having a local connection, uh, understanding your local community, um, and also targeting recruitment locally. So that the evidence on how to get um, black and minority ethnic um, people into the force, for example, is that if you, the, the more local the recruitment, the, the more effective it becomes. Um, and obviously, if you if you know your community, you know the issues, you understand the people that you're working with. Um, you know, it stands to reason you'll be you'll be a better police officer. Um, okay. So final question is a bit of a silly one. Someone asked. What's your favourite police crime drama or character? Oh, gosh. Well, I watched all the kind of Borgans. I, I like, I like uh, you know, dramatic, dramatic crime drama rather than uh, the more basic ones. I like that. Borgen. I was thinking it would either be like Life on Mars, Ashes to Ashes. I love them. Or... Um, I had another one in mind. I mean, The Wire. I, have you watched The Wire? That's I awesome. didn't watch. I started watching it and then never quite got into it. So I didn't ever finish. You've got to push on through those first few episodes. You've got to keep going. Yeah. I think I got to number three and then gave up. So maybe I should go back. <laughs> you did that like three times and then I actually pushed through and it was really good. <laughs> um, or Happy Valley. That was the other one I was thinking of. Yeah, really I haven't good. seen that either. No. You haven't the seen bridge, that? You no, the Bridge, Borgen, all of those kind of, um, they, you know. If it's, yeah. if it's not if it's not subtitled i'm not interested wow <laughs> not even true i just like them they were kind of dark weren't they and, yeah uh, yeah um cool well i'm all out of questions thank you so much for joining us for our in conversation event I thought it was really you're cool. welcome you're welcome thank you you're welcome back anytime and thank you everyone for watching um and this is the event goodbye thank you bye, bye.